Zechariah 9. A prophecy. The word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrat and will come to rest in Damascus. For the eyes of all the people and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. And on Hamath too, which borders on it, and on Tyre and Sidon, though they are very skillful. Tyre has built herself a stronghold. She has heaped up silver like dust and gold like the dirt of the streets. But the Lord will take away her possessions and destroy her power on the sea, and she will be consumed by fire. Ashkelon will see it and fear. Gaza will writhe in agony. And Ekron too, for her hope will wither. Gaza will lose her king, and Ashkelon be deserted. A mongrel people will occupy Ashdod, and I will put an end to the pride of the Philistines. I will take the blood from their mouths, the forbidden food from between their teeth. Those who are left will belong to our God and become a clan in Judah, and Ekron will be like the Jebusites. But I will encamp at my temple to guard it against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from a frame and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from, river, from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with a frame. I will rouse your sons, Zion, against your sons, Greece, and make you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south, and the Lord Almighty will shield them. They will destroy and overcome with slingstones. They will drink and roar as with wine. They will be full like a bowl, used for sprinkling the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save his people on that day, as a shepherd saves his flock. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young man thrive, and new wine the young woman. Women. Thanks, Jack. Good evening, everybody. My name's Graham. If we haven't met before, come and say hello to me afterwards. If you, I don't know if you've been watching the news today, but today we discovered there's going to be an election on the 21st of May. And so what that means is if you think it rained a lot in the last couple of weeks, there was a lot of rain coming out of the sky, there'll be something else coming out of the sky over the next six months. Promises, uh, porkies, prophecies, we're going to be covered in those up until the 21st of May. Uh, everything will be better according to whoever it is. Everything will be free in the future if only you vote for them. They're just going to lay it on, I think, and uh, it's hard to tell I think sometimes some of them even believe the things they say. Sometimes I think they don't. 
but some of them at least sometimes do. So, so many promises will be made to you until the 21st of May. Whether you believe them or not is up to you. I'm no wiser than any of you. I can't help you with any of that. But what I can point you to do is today is some promises in the Bible that I think are significantly more reliable than the ones that you'll hear over the next few weeks. Uh, we're looking tonight at the book of Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah writing this prophecy about 500 years more or less before Jesus, so about 500 BC. Almost the last book of the Old Testament, uh, coming to an end of that period. God's people had been in exile in Babylon, but they returned to their homeland, and uh, they returned to, well, it was less than ideal conditions. Uh, the reason they'd been in exile was because of their sin. Judgment had come on them in the form of the city being destroyed, and they'd returned to the city to find ruins, uh, overgrown ruins at that. And so that's the time that Zechariah, other people like Haggai, uh, Malachi, people like that, Nehemiah, they were doing their thing, they were writing and they were working. So that's the context in which Zechariah gave this particular prophecy. Basically three sections in tonight's prophecy that we'll go through. A restored nation, a restored king and a restored people. So at the beginning there in that first section, you see that Zechariah names a whole lot of different places. Uh, thank you, Jackson, for reading that out. Did you, were you on a roster for that or did you get picked on to read all those strange names? So... It, those names don't mean much to us. Some of them might sound a little bit familiar because some of them still exist. Uh, they're still the same place they were even back then and still in the news occasionally. But most of them are not really that important anymore. Even in the time of Zechariah, these particular towns, they weren't world powers. They weren't global threats. Uh, why is it that Zechariah talks about them and why is it important that God returns to, to judge those people? Well, one of the things that they have in common is that back in the time of David, which is before Zechariah, several hundred years, uh, these places were enemies of King David. And so if you read through his stories, you'll see that part of him establishing the kingdom was to defeat some of these people. So Zechariah is calling out backwards to King David and to his reign to what he did, conquering these tribes, these places, and establishing his kingdom. And Zechariah is saying that the future that he sees is a bit like the past, only much better. The future that Zechariah is looking forward to is a bit like King David, because that was pretty good, but it's even better. Because this time, the coming king, who will be a lot like David, it will be permanent. His victory over God's enemies will remain. It'll never be undone, it'll never be in question. Say, look at verse 8, for example. I will encamp at my temple to guard it against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people. For now I am keeping watch. So Zechariah, in a difficult situation, less than ideal, looks to the past and says that the future is going to be like that, only even greater. Just like the great days under David, so the future will be complete and perfect, God's victory over his enemies. So the future is going to be like the past, but with improvements. Uh, my dad likes to restore old cars. And uh, one of them he bought years ago, it literally was a rat's nest. Uh, when he bought it, the rats had made their home in it. It's so old, 
that this car, that it's made out of wood. Parts of it, significant parts of it are made out of wood. And he's restored it, and uh, it's, it's actually better than new. So it's one of these cars. I went, oh, I should have, sorry, it's brought along a photo. That'd be fun for the car buffs. It's, it's one of these cars with big, sweeping mudguards, you know, that sort of car. Underneath the mudguards, there's a, there's a bracket, and it was pretty feeble in the original. So Dad, he got a bit of steel and essentially carved out another one to go inside that so that the car now is actually a lot stronger than it ever was. Uh, it's, it's still going, it runs okay. It's a bit of a nuisance to get started, but start it up every now and again we do and go do a couple of laps of the block. And it's better than it ever was now. And that's what Zechariah is saying about the future that he's looking forward to. But where does that leave us? I mean, there's a list of random places in the Old Testament. It's not really of much interest to us, is it? Let's be honest. What are we to do with all of this stuff about God conquering his enemies? Well, when we look back on that, uh, through, you might say, through the lens of Jesus and think about what he had to say, if you think about his words, then he actually had something to say about the nations, didn't he? Right towards the end of the Gospel of Matthew, of course, he talks about discipling the nations. So here's one of the big differences, in there, isn't it, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's not up to us. We don't need to hand out judgment on the nations. It's not up to us to sort any of that out. It's now our role to disciple those nations. And not just the nearby ones, the ones that Zechariah lists here, are, uh, they're right around the, the place where he lived. It would, to him, it was a fair amount of, of area that he was looking at. To us, it'd hardly be noticeable on a world map. But now, our imagination of what we do, of our task in discipling the nations, is as big as the world itself. So our imagination is significantly stretched. Are we responsible now, you and I, for discipling people who Zechariah couldn't even imagine existing? They were so far off the map of the world that he had in his mind. So for us today, when we look at Zechariah, we read about conquering the nations. We know that for us, it's actually about discipling them. That's, that's how we interact with the nations now. And the great thing about doing that now, here, is that it's just so much easier to do. Uh, we run a subject at Moreland College called Ministry in a Culturally Diverse Environment. And so I was browsing statistics this week, as you do, and I found that uh, some of the suburbs not far from here, like Lakemba and Wiley Park, the number of first and second generation migrants, over 90% in Lakemba and Wiley Park. It's not far away, is it, really? Just a couple of suburbs that way. Over 90% of the people living there today are either first or genera second generation migrants. They're from the nations somewhere, I don't know where, from all over the place. So it's a lot easier now to disciple the nations than when you had to walk there back in the days of the apostles. God has home delivered, hasn't he? It's kind of uber mission. It's heaps easier. You just have to drive to Lakemba. And a great reason to do that now, you might know that it's Ramadan. Some of you know that it's Ramadan. It's uh, the holy month for Muslim people. So they're fasting and then they break their fast in the evening. And the whole main street of Lakemba is roped off and it's, it's a massive street party. It's a massive street party. There's a group of Christians who've gone down there and they've set up what they call the peace tent. And uh, they serve uh, drinks, they serve food, and they tell people stories about Jesus, the Prince of Peace. 
And one of our students is on the team this year. I was chatting to her on Thursday. She said uh, she was down there last week, uh, Wednesday night, I think it was. She saw it. She's, she's from overseas herself. She saw a guy she thought looked like he was from her country, so she talked to him in their mutual language and told him a, a story about Jesus, the Prince of Peace. I think it was a, the story Jesus told about two men going into the temple to pray. And the guy listened really intently. He had lots of questions. He had a cup of tea. He walked off. A couple of hours later, he came back again. He said, I can't get this story out of my mind. I've just got so many more questions about this story. Tell me that story again. And uh, they had another long discussion. So people, are, people want to talk about this, and uh, they're happy to. The food's all laid on. In fact, I'm a bit peckish now that I'm talking about food. I might head down there later on if you want to come and join me and uh, say hello to the people in the peace tent. And maybe next year some of us could join them because it's our job to disciple the nations and they happen to live just a little bit over the hill that way. So that's the first section. Uh, judgment on Israel's enemies, for us, I think, looking at it this side of Jesus, it's probably more about discipling them. We'll leave the judging to somebody else. Then in the second section, it's about a restored king. So the nation, it had plenty of kings in the past. They had David, everybody knows King David. Everybody knows Solomon, you've heard that name. After that, it gets a little bit vaguer, doesn't it? Some of you might be able to name a couple of other kings. But uh, mostly, they're pretty forgettable characters. Uh, they were supposed to lead the nation, but they ended up misleading it, by and large, most of them. And more, most of them were worse than they were better. But not this king here. This king, the future king, is going to be righteous and victorious. That's a, that's a complete contrast to the old lot because <laughs> they were unrighteous and they got defeated because of it. So the coming king is righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Of course, that's why we're looking at this on Palm Sunday because the Palm Sunday that Jesus celebrated, he set up, he set it up so that he could act out this parable. So these words, which were by Jesus' time, I don't know, 500 years old more or less, about riding on a donkey, Jesus deliberately did that in order to show people this picture and trigger their minds about what was happening. He was acting out the fulfilment of this. Uh, lowly and riding on a donkey, what does that mean? Well, probably Zechariah, again, thinking about David. Uh, if you know the story of David, you know that there was a time when his own children rebelled against him. It was a really difficult period for him. He, he fled the city, fearing his life. And it was a really a struggle, that whole series of incidents. Eventually, he defeated his own son, which was kind of an own goal. But he, uh, he came back to Jerusalem riding on a donkey at that point, but severely humbled in the eyes of all the people. And I think that's what Zechariah was thinking about when he talked about riding on a donkey because that's what David did back then. Zechariah says the coming king is going to be like that. He's going to be righteous and victorious but also humble. And how do those two things go together? How do they go together? Well, on the Palm Sunday that most of us think about, which is the one Jesus had, the people there realised what was happening. At least enough of them realised the whole, oh, isn't there something in their the prophecy about a donkey? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Enough people remembered that so that they caused quite a scene. They cut down the palm branches. 
They put them on the hillocks on the ground. They waved the palm branches, all that sort of stuff, shouting Hosanna, uh, praising Jesus, proclaiming him to be king because of his humility riding on the donkey and the association with Zechariah. But what I don't think they quite understood was exactly how humble Jesus was going to be over the next few days and how humbled he would be on Good Friday. The crowd realised the donkey bit and they thought, that's it, we've ticked that box, now let's go straight to the next step, which is getting rid of the Romans. And when that didn't happen, they turned on Jesus because he wasn't the king they thought they deserved or were expecting. So Jesus' humility continued just beyond the donkey thing to actually, actually to death on a cross on Good Friday. That's what we remember that day, isn't it? So as in the first section, you might, you might say our, our geography has been, imagination has been stretched from just a few nations judged to many nations discipled. So when we look at this passage here about the king and his humility, I think when we consider Jesus, the amplitude of, of what was going on there is, is increased in our minds, isn't it? It, it would be an, a big thing for a king to ride a donkey. Like That's a big step from king to donkey. But when we think about the Lord Jesus, creator of the universe, to death on a cross, well, my arms aren't going to stretch that far. Not easily, not without pulling my microphone off, I think. It's just, it's so much greater, isn't it? It's really, it's really hard for us to imagine that step and that type of humility that Jesus showed at that time. Humility is an odd thing. We, at college during the week, we were, we were just talking about different things that we want to see in our graduates. Of course, one of them is humility. How would you teach humility? How would you have an exam on humility? What would, you, what would, what would happen if you got a distinction for humility? Is that like, like a contradiction in terms? Are you meant to fail a subject on humility? Is that what you're meant to do? I don't know. I got less than you. I oh, know I got less than you. I got the less. I'm, I'm the most humble. No, it's, it's a little bit complicated, isn't it, teaching humility? But you know it when you see it. And we see it here with the Lord Jesus. When we read Zechariah's words, what he imagined Jesus did so much more, not just from king to donkey, but from creator of the universe to death on the cross. So our imagination stretched that way and our imagination stretched that way as well. Then in the third section, uh, we've had a restored nation, we've had a restored king, now we have a restored people. The, the Lord will appear, the sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet, God will bring his people back together uh, say, for example, in verse 13, uh, Judah and Ephraim, that's the two halves of the nation. They'd been separated for hundreds of years at this point. God's going to bring them back together and they're going to be glorious and they're going to be victorious. Uh, if you read through verse 15, verse 16, verse 17, they'll destroy and overcome with sling stones. That's, that's the most basic weapon available to people at that time. Uh, a rock, <laughs> you can't get any simpler a a weapon than that. So they'll conquer using the most simple weapons. They'll drink and roar as with wine. They'll be full like a bowl. The Lord will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. So they're going to be glorious. I don't know if you picked this up at the end of John's reading there. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. So things are going to get better. The people themselves 
will be outstanding. The words used are attractive, beautiful, sparkly. I look at myself in the mirror and as the days go by, I find myself less sparkly than before. I don't know about you, but that's what I think. It's hard to imagine me being like this. Uh, people on this side of the room, they're already like that, aren't they? You guys, you're looking thriving, just like it says here, how attractive and beautiful they are. But I've got some bad news for you. If you just don't tell anybody, but just look over there quietly. That's your future. Okay? It's hard to believe it, but the people on this side of the room once had functioning knees and full heads of hair. It, I know, shocking, but true. It's, it's true. So your medium-term future is going to look a bit like that. Try, not to, try to hide your disappointment at this. Don't, let, don't tell anybody I told you this, but that's what's going to happen to you. It's already happened to me. We were at college the other day. It, it was miraculously not raining. Some students got a football out. I thought, oh, man, I'm going to kick it to me. Last time I kicked a football was in a, a church, uh, under-30s versus over-30s football game. I tore a hamstring. I couldn't walk for a week, for months. It was black and blue. I thought, what's work cover going to make of this? Those sorts of events, those under-30s versus over-30s things, they're really just excuses for the young adults to attempt to kill the senior pastor. <laughs> they almost got me, but I, I, I saw my thing and I had to leave the field almost straight away. So that was the only reason I lived, I think. So now, us, we are not that great. I mean, you're looking pretty good, you lot, not so much. Sorry, but I'm in that side too. The future is better for all of us. The future is a lot better for all of us. Zechariah here, using the images that he's got at his disposal, talking about how in his understanding of the future, the future people of God will be fantastic. Ah, fantastic. The words, the words used, sparkling, attractive and beautiful, not the words I would have chosen, but the words that Zechariah uses. And that's our future as well, only infinitely more so. We're not going to be, we are not going to be just as awesome as they look now. We're going to be even better than that, even better than we remember we were, even better than we imagined we were. We're going to be given a resurrected body, all of us. Spoiler alert, we've now gone past Good Friday onto Easter Sunday and Jesus' resurrection from the dead. If you didn't know that was coming, I'm sorry to take that away from you, but that's going to come on next Sunday. And that tells us what our future is going to be like as well. Let me read to you a little bit from 1 Corinthians. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Zechariah's imagination into the future, again, is asking us now to stretch that further. Not just to be slightly better than we are now, but we will be in resurrected bodies. A different type of body, to be sure. 
but one that has gone beyond and passed through death. So different ways that this prophecy relates to us and different aspects of our imagination being stretched. Uh, Years ago when I had less children and more time, I actually played a computer game once. I can sort of remember when I did that. Uh, We played a game called Civilization. I don't know what version it's up to now. I think it's still around. I might have played Civilization 2 maybe. I think it's up to 7 or something now. What it is is the type of game where you start off basically as a Stone Age kind of person and you've got to develop your civilization. You know, you can research reading and writing and go all the way up to travelling into space or something like that. So you, you, you'd mine the resources and you research the technology and there's different ways you can win the game. You can win the game by conquering the world, which always appealed to my megalomania. You can win the game by reaching the stars, different ways you can win the game. The first game I played, I was, I was on this little island and I was doing my thing and I was digging up some resources and researching things. They're pretty boring, really, pretty slow. And after, well, a few more hours than I should have given it, the game ended. I had no idea. The game ended. Uh, somebody else, I'd got to reading and almost to writing. Uh, I, I think I'd invented the wheel. Somebody else had made it to Mars. Some other civilization in the game had made it to Mars. So I was a little bit behind. Uh, and when that happened, when they won the game, the, the little black square in the bottom right-hand corner revealed itself as a world map. <laughs> I didn't know that. I should have read the instructions. But, but what I realised is that my tiny little island, where I just about worked out how to use a wheel, was literally a microscopic part of the greater civilization universe and they were all having a great time playing away and I just had no idea what was going on. My understanding of the world was so small. Oh, I wonder how many of us are in that boat and how Zechariah might challenge that tonight. I think there's three different ways that we challenged. Our imagination is stretched. First of all, as great as it was for Zechariah to look forward to God finally conquering those nations around them and bringing in peace, we're, our, our imagination might be bigger than that. <laughs> We've got a whole world of people to disciple and so many different ways to do that, even tonight just up the road in Lakemba. So that's one way. A second way, uh, Zechariah saw a king who was humble and victorious. We see the creator of the universe and we actually see him dying on a cross that that dimension, the amplitude of that is so much greater in our understanding now. And when Zechariah looked forward to new people in this new place with this new king, uh, the best he could think of what was revealed to him was uh, wonderful young men thriving on grain and young women, new wine. Don't take that too literally, everybody. But we know we've got so much more to look forward to than that. Uh, We know that one day this body, which believe it or not, it's not working as well as it used to, will one day be completely repaired. Our imagination needs to be stretched. May God do so this evening. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And when we read the prophecies of that day, we are challenged in our own thinking, in our own imagining. 
Help us to accept our role to disciple the nations and to embrace that. Help us to worship and honour the Lord Jesus because of his humility and even humbling himself to death on a cross. And help us to look forward in hope to the resurrection. Help us to cling to that hope and strive towards it. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.